you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, with the Lord's blessing upon us this morning, I'd like to continue looking at the opening of this letter. Last week, we talked to you about Sosthenes, our brother. Actually, what we did was get a little background on the city of Corinth and how the church started there and we saw that this was a place that was particularly special to the Apostle Paul. He spent more time at Corinth than he did anywhere else. And uh, a year and a half uh, or more, actually, he spent there preaching the gospel and showing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because Corinth was a city full of debauchery and... Um, as a matter of fact, if you check some old history writings and uh, to call someone a Corinthian was a byword for you're the nastiest individual I've ever met. That's how bad that place was. And so the Apostle Paul, wondering what he is supposed to do there, you recall had that vision by night where God said, I have much people in this city. And so that is an amazing statement of grace. And so last week we looked at two of the divine trophies of sovereign grace, the Apostle Paul and Sosthenes, our brother. Both of those were persecutors of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord changed their hearts and made them leaders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'd like to spend some time just with verse 2, maybe verse 3, but there are some precious, precious things found in this address to this church at Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've heard that third verse many times. Paul uses some kind of iteration of it at the beginning of most of his letters. And he is writing to a church that's already existing. And so when he is saying this, he's not saying, I hope you folks get born again. He's saying, you born-again children of God that are serving the Lord, I hope you grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you do, then you get peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's some remarkable things that Paul says in verse 2. First of all, he says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Remember what I described to you as Corinth being. Think of the nastiest city that you've ever been to or the nastiest city that you've ever heard of. And if someone were to tell you there was a church there, you'd say, no way. <laughs> There's no way. There's no godly people there at all. That's how it was at Corinth. So the statement, the church of God, which is at Corinth, is an amazing statement of the powerful grace of God. That this place that was about what is about 50 miles west of Athens. It was um, an exchange place, kind of like the, uh, in New York, where all world trade in that area was taking place in Corinth. 
And so you had the wicked business leaders, you had uh, the wicked sailors, you had uh, all of the trappings of a city that would entertain those folks during the day and the night, and you had a religion that was based upon debauchery as well. That was what was ruling that area. But there is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ there. You know what that tells me? There's hope for North Georgia. (laughs) That tells me that it doesn't matter what's happening out there. That we can have peace with God our Father. That we can grow in grace even if the city that's around us is crumbling. Even if our nation is turning away from God. We can go to that city of God that is here. We don't have to live in the city of man. We can dwell in the city of God and have peace and tranquility. I believe we can have. There are several statements that Paul makes in this, and when I was trying to think of a, of a title, um, I couldn't decide whether it was sanctified or be holy or you're called out because all of these ideas go together. As a matter of fact, when he says unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, the word church means called out to a local assembly. And that's actually the conclusion of my sermon this morning. I'm not done, but that's where we're headed, is what God did at Corinth is what God does when he wants a church somewhere. And that is it is a people called out of the wickedness of this world, called out but called together into a church, a local assembly meeting separate from the rest of the world. Not that they don't have an influence on the rest of the world because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ did have a positive influence at Corinth. But it didn't have it by taking over the government by arms. It didn't have it by running crusades or anything like that. Throughout history where Christianity has built true churches, the morality of the people ticked over into the good direction and it blessed the land. Why is that? Because we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, what God loves about an area and when that preservation uh, technique or, or, or aspect of Christianity is there, it preserves. Recall Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham pled for it. He said, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you preserve it? God said, I'll preserve it. I won't wipe it out. Took it all the way down to 10. That tells me there wasn't very many good folks there. But if there had been 10 in a city that was probably 30,000 or more, not sure the exact, but small percentage, God said, I'll preserve it for the sake of those. You want to know why America is still here? There's at least 10 righteous folks found. And so my call to you is the same call that Paul has here. We're called to do this. And so let's learn about it. Let's learn what it means to be a church, to be a called out group of people that is separate from the influence of the world, but has that influence on those that are around them. Notice what Paul says. Under the church of God. You'll recall last week, and if you've read this letter, one of the biggest problems at Corinth was there were divisions all over the place. People were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Paul is going to deal with that issue. 
But what I want you to notice is the division that was there because they were following men rather than following God brought about all of the other things that the Apostle Paul addresses in this letter. It talks about the lack of devotion. It talks about the racial division that was there. It talks about the division that happened between the rich folks and the poor folks. It talked about um, uh, uh, sins of the flesh that were not even named among the Gentiles. These things are in there because Paul had to address them. But what he says in this letter is the cause of all of this is you're not following God. You're following your own passions, or you're following your favorite preacher, or you're only listening when you like what you're hearing. Paul is saying that's what caused this weak discipline in the church. That's what caused this arrogant attitude is that you forgot that you were the church of God at Corinth. So he is saying, yes, this is not just the church at Corinth. But it's not Paul's church. It's not Timothy's church. It's not anybody else's church. It is the church of God at Corinth. Mount Perrin Church is the church of God in Walton County. One of them. <laughs> but that's the kind of attitude. Actually, it's not even an attitude. That's the mindset that we have to have when we come to this place and when we think of this place that we don't think of it as, oh, that's just a place that I go to church or that's the church where my membership is. It is the church of God. That tells me that sometime about 200 years ago or so, God said, I have much people in that place. I want a church there. And there's still a church here, so God has people in this place. And so let's look at what the church is to do. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul says some big words in there. Paul says some doctrinal words in there. There is a current trend in Christianity, and I use that term loosely because a lot of places that are calling themselves church um, are so far removed from what the Bible defines as a church that I'm not sure we could use that term lawfully in it. There is the idea that doctrine divides. And really the, the crux of their argument is this, is that it is impossible to understand what is the right doctrine of the Bible. And so we just need to gather together and everybody talk about Jesus. The problem with that is, is you end up with hundreds if not thousands of different definitions of who Jesus is. And there is one Jesus of the Bible, and he is defined for us. And so it is, is it sometimes difficult to figure out what the Bible is saying on a subject? Yes, it is. But I don't believe that it is impossible for the Lord's people to find the truth about what salvation is and who Jesus Christ is. That's what's revealed to us in his word. See, the problem is, is most folks don't like what they read 
And so they want to move away from it or they don't read at all. And they just want to sing Kumbaya, let's hold hands with Jesus. Where this is the church of God. Not my church where I can say, well, this is what I like to do. So we're going to design a church around this hobby that I have. End up with some really strange stuff out there. And really strange doctrines. I propose to you that if you look at the beginnings of the letters of the Apostle Paul. You're going to find the essential doctrines of who Christ is and how he saved us and what we are without him in the openings of letters. Now, if it's in the opening of a letter, that tells me in these first century churches that this was an understood doctrine that didn't have to be explained. Wow, how far we have fallen from the understanding. That people, when you tell them God chose, they said, that's not in my Bible. Yes, it is. It's right here. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul says this church of God contains people that are in it that are sanctified in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very specific wording that the apostle Paul uses right there. We're going to talk about sanctification by Jesus Christ, but this says sanctified in Jesus Christ. Sanctified. We don't use that word very much. We hear the word saint. We hear the word saint grossly misused most of the time out in public. But they come from the same idea, and they come from the same word, which means to be set apart for a holy purpose. That's our definition. That's sanctified. And a person that is sanctified is a saint. You don't become a saint because you did some miracle and some men gathered together in a private place and decided that you were going to be called a saint and people start praying to you. The Bible says those that are sanctified by God are saints. They are set apart. That's what those words mean. So what does it mean that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We know what that means. Turn with me over a couple of pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Y'all had to have known that I was going here. It's my favorite section of the Bible. There's no less than six hardcore difficult doctrines mentioned right here at the beginning of this letter. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 3 because... People say doctrine divides, but the Bible defines doctrine as a blessing because that's how God blessed with what he did. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Don't you love that? Count your many blessings. When you've sung that song or you've thought of that song, what did you think of when you counted your many blessings? Did you think of physical health or I've got enough food to eat today or I got the car that I needed? Well, the Apostle Paul starts singing, count your many blessings right here, doesn't he? Bless us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. According, here's number one, as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame 
before him in love. Blessing number one, election. God chose us in Christ before the world began. We were set apart for a holy purpose even before the world was created. And let us not misunderstand what that means in being sanctified in Christ. It's by God the Father. It is not based upon God looking down. Let's, let's, there are those that teach election. But they teach it this way. And this is not a straw man argument. I have talked to men recently that said this. That God looked down through time and saw those that would accept him. And so he chose them. I'm not going to pull any punches on this. That makes God a pretty weak God. If he can only elect those after they've made a move toward him. The problem with that is, is we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Grace doesn't start with our action toward God. Grace starts and continues and ends with God's actions toward us. That's grace. Romans chapter 9 teaches us the principle, the principle of election. Let's turn over there and read that. You might be able to quote it. You might have heard me quote it. But I want you to know where it is in your Bible so the next time you need it. Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is teaching that salvation is not by your bloodline. It's not because you were a Jew. Salvation is based upon the promise of God. He makes a statement in here that they are not all Israel, which are all of Israel. And then in teaching election, beginning in verse 10, he says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That deals with the argument that God looked down through time, saw the righteous ones, and chose them. This says that he didn't do it based upon their works actually happening or foreseen as happening. There's further evidence. There's multiple Psalms that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3 where he talks about man in his natural state and he comes to the conclusion there is none righteous. No, no not one. There's none that seeketh after God. Now the objection that people say, well, I seek after God. Yeah, thank the Lord that you do. But that didn't come out of you. That came because God did something for you. And Paul says it started with this. God chose you. They say, well, that's not fair that God didn't choose everybody. Well, you don't understand who God is. And you don't understand how bad we are. God is a holy God. He's not somebody that says, oh, they did okay. I can kind of pass over the rest of that. No, God so loved you that he had his own son killed. You cannot tell me that is a small thing. God so loved. That's the key word in John 3.16. Is that he so loved. 
And for us to be with him, it required not an obedience on our part that we could not fulfill. It required a perfect sacrifice. And so to have the idea, well, well I love God. Yes, and, and I'm not denying that. I think most of the Lord's people were born again at such an early age, they might not remember being an enemy to God. But the fact of the matter is, if we're not an enemy to God, it's not because we made a choice. It's because God moved on us. He changed our hearts. And the ones that he changed their hearts were the ones that he chose. Because Paul said, that's where the blessings start. But people say, I I still think that's not fair. (laughs) You know what? The Holy Ghost took care of that. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Isn't that the King James Version of that's not fair? God forbid. What is Paul saying? He makes an absolute negative statement that God would do something that is unrighteous. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Paul's argument When somebody says, it's not fair or it's unrighteous that God would choose some and not others. He says, no. It is within the nature, power, and priority of God that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'll give you a little homework. Read the rest of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Because it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he made us accepted in the beloved. See, if it's anything that man does, then it's not to God's praise. And then this becomes the church of God and Bryce, or the church of God and Ben. Think about it. The reason that this is called the church of God is because it's based upon God's grace and God's grace alone. If we mix in man's will or man's works, Paul takes it, not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Then we come here with one goal in mind, and that is to thank God for his grace, not to praise men for making the right decision. Because let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes you might make the right decision, but a lot of times you don't, do you? What if God was fickle like me and you and those times that we don't make the right decision, he says, fine, you're gone, you're lost. Thanks be to God that it's not of our will and of our walk and of our run. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want fair. We want justice. And we have justice in Jesus Christ. God counted all of our sins toward him. And the reason that he did that is because before the world began, we were sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, does every church of God teach election? No. But they should. And they shouldn't be afraid of it. Why are we afraid of it? Well, because it takes our will out of the matter, doesn't it? Here's the problem with, with will. 
Um, I really, really don't like long-distance travel in a car. Anybody that's ever traveled any long distance with me, and when I'm talking about anything more than about 45 minutes, I don't want to be in the car any longer than that. Claustrophobic, you name it, I don't want to be in there. And so it is my will that the next time I travel to Texas to see our family, it is my will that I sprout wings and fly, and it takes about 30 minutes to get there. By the way, it's 900-something miles. That's my will. Let me ask you a question. Is that going to happen? No. Why? Because it doesn't matter that that's my will. I don't have the ability to do that. Jesus himself said to some Pharisees, ye cannot hear my word. He didn't say you will not hear my word. That's a matter of man's will. Jesus himself said you cannot hear my word. That's a question of ability. They didn't have the ears to hear. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Paul's headed there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 defines what Jesus meant by all that. Read it. It's awesome. It gives all of the glory to God. And so Paul, in one place, would say, God hath reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, most people teach that. That means it's the preacher's job to get men reconciled to God. That's a get right with God before you die. That's a, not even a veiled threat, folks. That's a flat-out threat. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. But if Paul says that God was reconciling us to him in Christ, that's a work that God is doing. So this ministry of reconciliation is not... To get us to heaven is to reconcile in our minds that God did it all. That's the ministry of the gospel. Is to settle in our minds and find that true peace and true definition of grace. I wish we could just say, I believe in grace. But now we've had to say, I believe in sovereign grace. Now we've had to say, I believe in sovereign grace plus nothing. Paul said, if there's any works in it, then grace is no more grace. So when I use the term grace, I am talking about a salvation that is complete in Jesus Christ. That God is the author and finisher of it all. And so his first definition of these folks of God's church in Corinth is that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions election right there. Now what's interesting, he says, called to be saints. What? He already said sanctified. They're already set apart. And then he says, but you're called to be set apart. It's because the beginning of the grace, you know, the, the song Silent Night says, um, with the dawn of redeeming grace. Folks, the true dawn of redeeming grace is when God chose you. And so we were chosen by God before the world began. We were already set apart so that when we are here and for all eternity, we are his. But while we are here, we are called to be set apart. 
This gets rid of the idea, well, God did it all, so I just need to go live any way I want to. That's not what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul addresses, addresses that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin that grace may abound? What does he say right there? God forbid. He said, you haven't been listening to what I'm saying. He said, you're dead to sin. How can you live any longer therein? See, grace changes us. And there are two different things that the Bible talks about in call. There is a calling done by God himself. And there is a calling done by the preaching of the gospel. The calling done by God himself is an irresistible call. John chapter 5 talks about they, they shall hear his voice and they shall live. That is an irresistible call. It is a call which changes the heart of folks, and it's done for a very specific reason. Let's go back to the Ephesian letter. Ephesians chapter 2. I got to catch verse 1 because most objections to the doctrine of grace deal with how bad is man. Well, here's how bad he is. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's not metaphorical. That is a spiritual death. If God intended for us to understand that our nature without the grace of God was that we were a little bit sick, but there's a little light in us, he would have said that. But he doesn't use those terms. He said you got to be born again. That's from no life to life. Dead in trespasses and sins and quickened by who? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. God did it. God called you by his marvelous grace. The voice of the Son of God spoke. Now, if you look at the miracles of Jesus Christ, every other miracle that is done, the person came to Christ for help or somebody brought the person to Christ for help. But the three instances of Jesus raising someone from the dead, Jesus went to them, spoke directly to them, or touched them and spoke directly to them. Tabitha arrives. The widow named son, I say unto thee, arrives. Lazarus, come forth. Did they say, well, let me think about it? Or did they sit up and immediately have life? That is the power of God in resurrection. That's the power of God in the new birth. But he didn't do it. So, well, let's look at it this way. Let's take Lazarus, for instance. Did Jesus Christ raise Lazarus from the dead so that when he got done doing that, Lazarus would go back in that tomb and lay down? No. Because after that, he told those that were around him. Now, let me make sure you understand something about how Lazarus came forth. It says he was still bound. It doesn't say wrapped. He was bound. He wasn't wearing a suit. He was bound. He could not move his arms, could not move his legs. What does this mean? Jesus raised him from the dead, and he floated out of that tomb. And then he said to those men around, loose him and let him go. Because he's got something to do. What is that he is to do? Live. You are born again to live, 
Notice what this says. Skip on down now. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But in verse 8 it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, however you define grace and faith there, it's all the gift and power of God. It's not in man's decision. It's in God that shows mercy. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you made the decision to follow Christ, don't get arrogant about it. Because you wouldn't have made that decision if Christ hadn't made the decision for you. So just be thankful for it. You know, there's an extreme liberty in that. Because if I made the decision for Christ, I might sometime make a decision not for Christ, and then I'm going to get a little worried about my eternal salvation. God's not fickle in that, folks. He didn't leave it into your hands. He put it in the hands of his son, and his son said it is finished. But notice this, not of works lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. What? What is work? It is something that someone does. We are his workmanship, which means God worked on us, right? We're not working with God. We are the object, the direct object in what's going on here. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. One of the first things that we see here in 1 Corinthians when it says called to be saints is you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You weren't created in Christ Jesus to go watch a Braves game. There's nothing wrong with watching a Braves game, but that's not why you were born again. So your first priority shouldn't be a Braves game. It should be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he chose you before the world began and he sanctified you in Christ Jesus and Christ called you to be a saint. He made it where you can do what you were designed to do. God chose you to be set apart before the world began. The Holy Spirit comes so that you can. Because before you were dead in sins. You couldn't please God. You had no faith. But the gift of faith is given in the new birth so that you can trust him, so that you can follow him. And you're called to do it. And let me back up again. We're not just called to go do that on our own. We're called into a local assembly to do it. So we're supposed to find a church and devote ourselves to God through that church. That's how God designed it. Because you know what? It's a whole lot easier To do the right thing and to follow God when there's people there encouraging you. Isn't it? That's the reason, if you look over at Hebrews chapter 10, when it talks about this warning about God's wrath against sin, it only mentions one sin. And you know what it is? It's church attendance. Forsaking of the assembling ourselves together. Why does he mention that one thing? By the way, he calls it a sin. (laughs) Okay? Why does he mention that one sin? Because it is is either a symptom of other sins in your life or it's the first step to walking down a road of sin. Being away from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a safe place to be. It's not a safe place to be at all. If you'll recall back a couple years ago when we were going through the book of Ephesians and we talked about the uh, shield of faith. 
You remember that? The shield of faith is not that little round buckler that they carried on their arm. It's the same Greek word for the word door. It was over six foot tall and about three foot wide. And it only works when you've got a shield next to you on either side. And you've got shields behind you. And you have a shield above you protecting you from the fiery arrows of the devil himself. That's the best definition of church I've ever seen. You remember what that was called, right? Testudo. I said, be a turtle. <laughs> the church of God is a turtle. It can move. You won't forget that now, though, will you? <laughs> but it's got that impenetrable shell that only works when you're in it. And I'm only protected when you're in it. And those that you love are only protected when you're in there doing your part and you're called to do that. You're called to be set apart from the world, but not set apart alone. You are called to be set apart from the world for a purpose of God in his church. That's what the Greek word means. Ecclesia, called out into an assembly. God has ordained that we should do good works. Now, what does ordain mean? Does that mean he predestinated that we would do good works? That's not what the word ordain means. Preamble of our Constitution says we do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. If ordain meant they predestinated, we wouldn't have the problems in our country that we have today because people would be following the Constitution, and they're not. We know that. Ordain means to declare. God has declared by the act of the new birth, his purpose in it is that you ought to be doing good stuff. <laughs> That's why he did it. Yes, so that you can be with him, but he could have waited to do it until you're on your deathbed. But he caused you to be born again so that you would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that you would love others, and that you would be Christ-like while here on earth. Called to be saints. Now, some folks require that you define whether this called to be saints is talking about the new birth or whether it's talking about the gospel. I don't think it's required because they call the same thing. The gospel says, be ye holy even as God is holy. It says there is a standard of living which Christians ought to follow, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And so whether this is talking about the calling of the new birth, or it's calling where the gospel says, come ye out from among them, it's the same message. By the way, the, however, the, the message that you are to come out from among the world is impossible unless you have been called by Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, a lot of folks have been called by Jesus Christ. They have had the unction of the Spirit in them to do good, and they're not doing it, don't blame God. Don't blame God. He brought down the walls of Jericho. Pick up a sword and get on over it. Remember that? God did at Jericho what men could not do. Many armies had tried, and they could not take down Jericho. God took down the walls, but that didn't kill everybody. They still had a job to do, to take out a sword and defeat their enemies. We have a job to do. God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. 
And so we have a job to put on the whole armor of God and fight off the enemies now because before we couldn't do it. We're called to be saints. We're called in the new birth. We are given the power. We are given the faith to be able to do it. And the gospel tells us, be holy. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are called to learn about Jesus Christ. Actually, that's not what it says. It says to learn of me. Catch that? That's not just learning about Jesus Christ. That's learning from Jesus Christ. Can Jesus Christ teach somebody when they're out on a fishing boat? Yes, he can. And he did it in the Bible. And I'm not sure he's done it since. You know what I mean. Jesus has said, though, that I will be in my house every Sunday. If you want to learn of me, it's a guarantee that you can learn from me and of me and about me if you come to my house. If we're in the word of God, we're called to do that. How is it that we learn to be different from the world if we're not listening to what it means to be like Jesus Christ? So there's some marvelous things that we've already seen here. It's under the church, the called out group of God, which is at Corinth. Something I didn't mention about that before. The city of debauchery. God can have his church in the nastiest city on earth at that time. That means whatever lame excuse I have <laughs> is lame. Because God had a called out people in that place. I need to drop my excuses and realize he's called me by his marvelous power. He's given me that desire. And I need to remember what the Apostle Paul says, quench not the spirit. That's not talking about the new birth. That's talking about the motivation to help and to do good and to worship him. Say, so, well, it's inconvenient. Oh, I'm sorry. Jesus went to the cross for you. Get over your inconvenience. I'm not going to pull the punches on that one. I've heard that too much. It's too difficult to get to church. Well, thanks be to God, it wasn't too difficult for Jesus Christ to get to the cross. Folks, our woke society has invaded the minds of God's people where they get offended by Christian words. Paul said, quit you like men. You know what he was saying? You're being sissies. Go read it. Am I right? He's saying you men are not being men. You're being sissies. Now, if people were to say that today, they say, well, you're not being very Christian. Christ said some of the same things. Paul said the same things. It was just the terminology they used back then. There's going to be an area coming up in here that talks about men having long hair, and it's a shame. Why? Because they look like women. God made men, God made women, and they're not supposed to look alike. That's one of the errors that was at Corinth. Oh, well, that's not very inclusive. No, it's not. Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. Jesus said, I came to divide. I brought a sword. Who's going to follow me or who's going to follow? The uh, I'm getting into the other sermons. Okay. But that's the point of being called out. There's a different standard and it's the Bible. Because the Bible describes who Jesus Christ is. And by the way, if we justify whatever behavior we like, 
we are saying we can redefine what the church is because we want to follow this way of thinking. Current trend is let's put tattoos on our body to show that we love the Lord. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you want to defile it by marking it up, cutting it up? Now, does the Bible say don't get tattoos? No. It says don't mark your flesh for the dead, though. That sounds pretty close to me. And a lot of people do that. We are to find our order of worship and the way that we ought to worship and the things that we ought to teach in worship. We only have one record of what that should be, and that is the Word of God. We have a will to do otherwise, but we don't have the right to do otherwise and say that we're still conformed to the worship of God according to the first century. And so we're called to act differently. We're called to worship differently. Oh my goodness, we have children in the room, so I'm not going to describe to you what Corinth called worship. All right? It's that bad. And it got into the church. And the church didn't say anything about it. And some of the most scolding things I've ever heard, Paul says in this letter about that. Now, does that mean that every sin we do, we kick people out and say, you're not getting to go to heaven? No. But we say, you ought to live to a higher standard, and we encourage one another, first of all, to live that higher standard. Best way to do that is to be together so you don't go do something goofy or stupid. But when we do, we call on them to repent. Repent. And to turn from it. And let us not ever speak the words, that's not the church's business. Because right here it says it is. This whole book talks about that. So we're sanctified in Christ Jesus. You were chosen before the world began. You were called to be saints. You were called by the irresistible power of God. You were made willing in the day of his power. <laughs> I love that phrase. You wouldn't be willing if his power hadn't come upon you. But his power has come upon you. And the gospel calls upon you to do what you were designed to do. That is to be a saint. To be set apart. To be different. You say, well, that's a little uncomfortable. It ought to be. Remember on the day of Pentecost, they said, those fellows are drunk with new wine. When you do this, there's going to be two responses. People are either going to praise the Lord for what he has done in you, or they're going to think you're drunk with new wine. Either way, you're doing the right thing. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 2. Listen to this one very closely. Titus chapter 2. We'll start in verse 12. The gospel is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Paul right there defines for us the purpose of church. It teaches us how to not live like the world. 
Therefore, if we're not there, we're not learning how to live not like the world. To live like Christ, we have to be part of that. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second part of that is we're taught to live righteously and we're taught to look for the day that Jesus is coming back and taking us home. By the way, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul sums up the entire Corinthian letter in those two verses. <laughs> but look at this next verse. Who gave himself for us. Who is the who? Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself for us that. What does the word that mean? The purpose of why he gave himself for us. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Jesus died on the cross. We need to find the zeal. It's in us. We need to not quench it down. We need to not press it away. We need to not do things to distract us from it. We need to be zealous of those good works. Peter says the same thing. Turn with me over to 1 Peter. It's not necessary to have more than one apostle say it, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all things be established. This is not just Paul talking. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2 and 9. Wow, look how he starts this. But ye are a chosen generation. Remember what I said a few weeks ago? That if you don't like the doctrine of election and so you're going to take those parts out of your Bible that teach it, well, you've got to throw out 1 Peter now. You're not going to have much left of your Bible. So you know what the solution to that is? <laughs> Believe in election. <laughs> It's a whole lot easier to read your Bible. You don't have to ignore what it says. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. That sounds like saints, doesn't it? A peculiar people. Now, we use the word peculiar like to mean weird. And so part of that's true. The world thinks we're weird. If the world doesn't think you're weird, then you're not acting like a saint. Because the world is going to think you're weird. But that's not what peculiar means. If I were to say when you walk into a hospital, what do you smell? It has a peculiar smell to it that's significant to a hospital. Let me make it easier to you. If you walked into a cheap nursing home, that has a peculiar smell that you know you've walked into a very poor care facility, right? Right? By peculiar, he means that you are special to him, that your behavior identifies you as being part of him. All right? We're a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter even says, reminds us that he called us out of the darkness. He called us into light. That we should show forth praise. Praising the Lord all the time. Let me encourage you. I'm not very good at evangelism. And so I've tried to find a few phrases to kind of open the door to talk to people. And here's one that I've found that works pretty well. Sometime during the week, recognize what God's done for you. 
go to somebody and say, let me tell you how good God is. And if they say, tell me about it, then sit down and praise God together for a little while. That's all you got to do because that's what you've been called to do. Let's go back over to 1 Corinthians and finish this up. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. I like that that's there. You know why? Otherwise, the letter wouldn't be for me and you. This isn't just for the saints that are at Corinth. It's for the saints of God, wherever their church home may be. Reminding them to get into a church home, to call, that you're called to be saints. And notice this. <clears throat> That in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. What? Remember the purpose that Paul wrote this letter was there was divisions at the church at Corinth. The children of God don't always get along on things. But Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's also your Lord. Jesus Christ is also the Lord of those that don't believe exactly like we do. They love him, but they don't understand him the same way that we do. Do we take the world's definition? Well, if we start introducing doctrine to that, then we'll never find the truth. That's not true. That's not true. That's a Gnostic idea that we can't know the truth. We were given the Bible so that we can know the truth. And he has become, Paul says, he has become unto us all wisdom. If in your talking with somebody that doesn't believe grace like you do, don't give up. Don't say it's impossible. There's not a true church. Yes, there is. It's called the church of God. And it's got problems. It's got messed up people in it. It's got folks that need to repent. But they're all called to be saints. And that's what we're here to do, is to try and live more like Jesus Christ. That's what we're encouraging one another to do, by His grace. That's why I reminded you, God took care of the difficult part. If we think it's difficult to serve Him, wow, you're already alive. <laughs> that's the hard part. The desire's there. So do this and remember this, that... The Lord Jesus Christ, to all those that call upon his name, he's our Lord. He's their Lord as well. Let's find them. Let's rejoice with them. And he said, well, I don't know what to say to them. We learned yesterday at Camp Creek what to say. Just say, come and see. <laughs> if you don't know how to explain it, just say, I thank the Lord for grace. And they said, what do you mean by that? Well, come and see. Come and see. They may come. They may not. That doesn't matter. We need to be rejoicing and praising God for his marvelous grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ that we have and the peace that comes along with that. And that's Paul's greeting to them and to us. So when church problems come up, don't give up. Because churches are made up of God's people. Brother Spurgeon said one time, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. You know what he meant by that. You're an imperfect human being. And if you think there's not a church good enough for you, then <laughs> you're going to mess up whatever you do join. 
Go back and examine God. Examine yourself in the light of God. And then cast your lot with a group of people. Praise the Lord there. Work with them there. Because we have one Lord. And his name is Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you all is my prayer.